I've been so energized by these smart, you know, entrepreneurs that I meet all the time that one day will happen and, you know, Brett Favre will stop playing and, you know, somebody will stop playing. They'll hang up their cleats or whatever. And I hope I don't go out ugly like some of them. I hope I really know. And, and, I, and I, I end on a really good note and people still think I'm yep. smart. And so that's how I'll try to go out. Not anytime soon, though. You're listening to Hawk Talk, a podcast all about the origin stories of the most interesting people in the world. Today, you know our guests as famous athletes, authors, and entrepreneurs, but there's so much more to this story. Let's get into today's interview with your host, Eric Huberman. All right, you're listening to Hawk Talk. I'm here today with Brian Scott Taylor. How you doing, man? I'm doing great. How's everybody doing out there? everybody out there, all the listeners. So got to kick it off. I assume the day you're born, you come out, you start wheeling and dealing. You're trying to like set up this doctor with another hospital, replace someone, like just make stuff happen from the get-go, right? You know, I wish I could take credit for going to some really good school and having really good parents that, you know, nurtured me along the way to be some tycoon. But I do think, Eric, and you've seen a lot of people, I think you might be a product of this as, as well. I just don't know any better. I don't know any different. I'm always trying to connect people from the time I was a little kid. You're right. So, and to kick it off, like where, where did it start? Where were you born? I was born in Irvington, New York. Irvington was a small town right outside of New York City in Westchester. It's a population of 8,000. So there was like a school every mile back then. Yeah. They called them hamlets. Historical place. It's where Washington Irving was born. It's where George Washington used to invade the British. And then he would come in and invade them, then run back into the woods where I live. Yeah. A great place to grow up. Got it. Got it. And so from the beginning, like, tell me about your parents. Like, or you said you didn't have the, you know, I was, I'm old. I was born in 1963 and, uh, I was raised by a single mom. I was the youngest of three kids. I, um, had a lot of friends, you know, I built forts, think of the wonder years. And then think of that was kind of the time that I grew up where yeah. kids were thrown outside, told to go do stuff and, and then come back for dinner. And essentially my mom worked a bunch of different jobs. And during the summer when, um, everybody's mom was home, my mom was working and, couldn't afford a babysitter. So I used to go down to the post office and cancel stamps. Like physically, they would, that's what they would do. And it was it was the town back then that kind of took care of me. I would have, you know, see people in the post office. They'd say, come help me unload a truck. How old were you when you were working in the post office? I was like seven. Yeah. I was, and because I talked so much, there was a snowplow guy that would snowplow in the middle of the night. Yeah. And he would ask if I would come with him so I would keep him awake so he wouldn't crash the snowplow. <laughs> that's amazing. <laughs> Give my mother 10 bucks. Yeah. And so what did your mom do? What was her profession? She was an administrator. She was a secretary at a company called Union Carbide, which most people don't know, but that was a conglomerate that owned Glad bags and, and all kinds of different products. And then they had a little accident in Bhopal, India. And, uh, you know, a couple thousand people died and that wasn't too popular. So they closed that place down and uh, she was a secretary. Yeah. Got it. Got it. And And so was she also like a sort of like well-known person in the town? Like how did you get ingrained in that? Like how was it that you, seven-year-old working in the post office, did your mom walk you in or did you just wander around on your own and stumble into the post office and go, I need a job at seven? It's a great question. My mother grew up in Irvington, yeah. graduated in like 1942, yeah. got married, ran around uh, being married. And then my father, you know, and, and her separated when I was about a couple months old. Um, and then she moved back home. And so I got to grow up in a place where I actually had roots, which has made it that way. I never really thought about it before, but you're right. That's what happened. Yeah. And so, and did she like, again, I'm curious with that first post office job or the snowplow, like, 
were these things your mom introduced you to, or did you have friends? Like, how did that open? I, I assume you weren't a seven-year-old, like, looking up at the counter with a, you know, clipboard filling out your application. I was like, I was one of these crazy kids at, at, at five or six. I would sit on the stoop. We lived across from a restaurant. And, and back then, priests like the Monsignor would go in there for dinner and probably drink and get hammered. But I would be like, hey, Monsignor, you know, when I was five years old and six years old. So I was kind of a lunatic. But my mother, you know, I mean, I knew people. And I, I think what makes sense about this conversation and that is that I felt so secure and I, and I had so much confidence that it, it caused for this idea that, you know, anything was possible. Like, who, what's anybody going to do to me? And I got really lucky. Nobody attacked me. I didn't get molested. You know, it was, it was a really safe place to experiment and fail and know you're going to survive. Yep. Makes sense. So you started working all these little jobs when you were seven, eight. What, like, how did that progress? What did that start? I, I assume there were some entrepreneurial endeavors in there. I, I was a big observer and I wasn't a traditional learner. I have ADD and all the other Ds you would imagine. <laughs> and I, I had the access to really good people. I had access yeah. to good dads. I had access to guys that worked at the post office who were World War II veterans that yeah. like flew the flying tigers, you know, like for the Royal Canadian Air Force. So I had these amazing images in my mind of what good men were, like real yeah. courageous men, that whole, you know, amazing generation. Yeah. And um, and that's that's primarily how I learned through observation. And that would continue for the rest of my life. Got it. And so through that, what what did that spearhead into like as a kid? Like you had the post office, you did the snowplow thing. Did How did that progress? Did you start doing? Yeah, go ahead. I just got to know people, you know, these are all different people. The other thing you have to remember is while I was like in the snowplow with that dude who was smoking weed and like protesting Vietnam, I was also with these World War II veterans. And then Irvington quickly became this town outside of Manhattan where, you know, Herb Allen lived. I mean, I used to go out with his daughter. So, you know, this is the guy that has a Sun Valley thing. So I was seeing all these things coming at me like it was a cornucopia of people, the blue collar people. And there were these amazing qualities that were very distinguished between them and like people that were really rich and the way that they yep. looked at life and the way they treated people. So that, that got me interested. And I think gave me a huge advantage as I started interviewing for real jobs besides a post office job when I was seven. Well, that's what I'm curious about. So what was the next job? Like, did you work at the post office for six years or? I went into the Navy. I mean, like that was all like just babysitters. Like, but like middle school, high school, did you stay at the post office? I mean, no, they kind of like took care of me. I, I never really okay. got paid. They just would, they got would it. have me go do that when I was little. Then I was cutting lawns, deliver, I had a newspaper out. That's just like the it. guy I want my $2. I would chase these ladies. The curtains would come down, you know, for a dollar fifty, knocking on the door. So that was like my cold calling. It was like, yep. hey, where's my money? You owe me 40 cents, you old freaking yep. cheapskate. And then <laughs> I, I did terrible in high school. I got F's. If I get a D minus, it was like, you know, buy myself a, uh, an ice cream sundae because I was terrible. And then I went into the Navy at 17. So it was a pretty quick jump. And did you enlist? Did you go into Naval? It sounds like you enlisted. You didn't. Yeah, I enlisted. The truth is my, yeah, like my best friend played a joke on me, said he was me, sent in a postcard. The recruiter called me. Meanwhile, everyone in my graduating class of 80, to give you yeah. an example of where they were going to school, it was yeah. Brown. Princeton, yeah. Harvard, Colgate, you know, Dartmouth. And yeah. I was going enlisted as a jet mechanic in the Navy. And yeah. so, you know, that was not a conventional route to any kind of success that people would have imagined. And was your mom surprised? Was that something like, obviously, it's, you said it started with a prank. Someone sent in a postcard to get you hit up. But then you went, ah, sure, why not? It's a big life. Well, you know, I tell people it was the first experience I had with sales in the purest form. The recruiter said, Scott, let me ask you this. 
would you like to travel around the world, get paid for it and go to college? And I went, hmm, that sounds interesting. He goes, why don't we do this? Why don't you come into the recruiting station? I'll answer whatever questions you have. You go home. And if you have any other questions, the ball's in your court, you call me. And I, I was just like, Zzz. and yeah. the next thing I knew, I was in boot camp. And this guy was telling me he was going to start dating my girlfriend. I was going to say, did you feel bamboozled? Were you like, this isn't traveling the world. What do I just do? Or what did you know what you were getting into? I didn't. You know, I was so looking back. I, I think about the story is really funny because I said, I'll go in and I want to go be in, the, in aviation. I want to fly. And they go, yeah. yeah, yeah, you can fly. Sure. You just join and you come in and you volunteer as a jet mechanic. And then you go in, then they, they'll, you'll be a pilot. And I went, all right, cool. I was 17, man. Yeah. So I go in, and I go, hey, you know, I think there's been a mistake. I'm supposed to get in the flying program. And he yeah. goes, no, that's awesome. He goes, so where'd you go to college? I go, I didn't go to college. He goes, great. Here's your new friend. And he's like, here's your broom. And he like gives me a broom. And I was like, what? And, um, <laughs> but, you know, the pivot, four years on two aircraft carriers, was in a squadron, worked in the most dangerous job, you know, in the world, working on a flight deck, met amazing people. and another opportunity for me to observe people. Yeah, I was going to say, so like, what did you pick out from there? Like, so you, you did your four years and you got out with the Navy? Yeah, I did four years, but because I could speak in fluent sentences and use an occasional linking verb, they thought like I was a Rhodes Scholar compared to the other enlisted people there <laughs> who were way smarter than me. But because I grew up in Westchester, yeah. you know, I, I didn't sound like a thug. And it was really at that moment in my life, they put me in charge of the company. So now I was the recruit chief petty officer in charge of 80 something, 90 people that were anywhere from 17 to 28. Yeah. And that's where I, I realized I actually had, you know, some leadership chops and then just kind of progressed. And so four years, did you get to travel the world? I traveled all over the world, man. I, I went on a, I was on the USS Forrestal CV-59 to give you an example. They're like in the eighties or nineties now. And then yeah. CV-63, the USS Kitty Hawk. And I traveled throughout the Mediterranean, the Atlantic, the Pacific, Indian Ocean, part of the you know conflict when they were blowing up oil tankers in the Gulf of Sudra back in the 80s. That's when I was in. And it was it was awesome. Met a lot of people. I ended up meeting my wife when I was in the Navy. So it was pretty amazing. How'd that happen? Let's hear the story. Yeah, the story is that um, you know, military bases aren't known for their um their attraction of really beautiful women, as it turned out. They were a little rough around the edges. And growing up in Westchester. You know, I was used to some of the finer things in life, even though I was poor. I saw this blonde who was super cute, drove up on a base. I was playing softball for the company squadron team. And, you know, it was a 1956 Porsche, which was beautiful. She got out of it. And I said, I'm going to go out with her. And they're like, dude, that's a captain's daughter. You know, you, you got to stay away from her. And of course, that was a challenge. And, and asked her out. She went out with me once and then broke up with me for obvious reasons. And then... I ran into her six years later and uh, we got married oh. and, you know, married for 32 years. It's pretty wild. That's amazing. Yeah. And so, all right. So you get spend four years in the Navy. What drove you to leave? Because a lot of times they hook you in, they get you to stay, you become a lifer. Like, why, why'd you want out at that point? You're you're 100% right. I was done. You know, I was kind of like what you probably felt when you were getting out of college. I had I had yeah. done my time. I learned a lot. I, I didn't want to continue to stay in the Navy like you probably didn't want to stay and get your PhD. I wanted to yeah. get out and make money. So it made me yeah. hungry and yeah. I learned a lot about people. I thought I was pretty equipped to get out and take over the world. And my first job, my first real job getting out of the Navy, you know, I, I kind of waited tables. I went to a little bit of school, realized that I, I didn't want to do that. And I started out selling copiers for 3M, which was very glamorous and very yeah. sexy, as you would imagine. Straight commission. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> I was going to say, after running a, you know, a company of 90 people and you're, you know, you had moved on up and then you go to door-to-door -door sales on copiers, 
how'd that feel? Was that humbling or were you like, like you hadn't gotten big for your britches? Yeah. You know, I didn't, I, I was that guy that didn't know any better. I was really naive. Yeah. And my mom had told me all those years that I was getting F's and like just screwing up that I was special. And I didn't take it like I was special. Like I need to go on another kind of bus. I took it special. Like I was going to be like something. And so that, yeah. that reinforcement gave me the confidence to knock on doors. And I mean, yeah. I had a JC penny suit. I had a pair of Boston Weijin loafers or something, whatever they were. And I just thought everybody needed to talk to me that how was I going to be a millionaire if people didn't talk to me? So I had to go knock on doors and I pretended that I was like the CEO of 3M. Every time I, I, I spoke to somebody, I just had that kind of attitude. Perfect. So how long did you do that? I did that for a year. I was a top salesman in the company, so I was super cocky, won the trophy and all that. Got to imagine you were making money too. Yeah. And I was, you know, I made almost $100,000 my first year selling copy machines, which back then was unheard of. You know, the, the, the guys that were really good were making 60. And I ended up getting recruited by a company called Payne Weber which was a, a like a stock brokerage company that Dean Witter, Payne Weber, like Lehman Brothers, Merrill Lynch, they were a bunch of them. These were one of the ones that, they were the big ones that didn't make it, but they got, I think, acquired. But, I, you know, I went and bought a pair of suspenders. I figured if I could make a hundred grand selling coppers, I'll make millions being a stockbroker. And then like Leonardo DiCaprio, the market crashed, you know, during Wolf of Wall Street, 1987. And I didn't go- Was it savings and love? Was that 87 was savings? That wasn't savings and loan. That was just the stock market crash. Yes, it might have been savings and loan, 84. What they call that? Black Monday or something? Black Monday. Yeah. Yeah. And that was October 87. And I ended up begging for my job back. And I got my job back at 3M and ended up staying there and became a manager and uh, learned how to run a P&L. Learned that these guys aren't my friends. They work for me. And they could potentially sabotage my whole life if they don't hit their numbers. And so I quickly understood I worked really hard. I always hit my numbers. They need to work hard and hit their numbers. It was a very, very fair relationship. Yeah. How did that go? Like, how was that learning curve to start managing people? Because it sounds like you had no problem with work ethic, but you earn a lot when you start managing. Like, and how old were you at that point when you went back to copiers? 23. I, I got out of the Navy at 21. And I, yeah, I was like 23, 24 or something. Um, yeah. And I, you know, it was hard because I want people to like me. I mean, salespeople are generally nice, outgoing people. They're not, they're not people that when you say that, you know, it doesn't hurt your feelings when you get rejected, it does. You just have to know how to deal with it. You know how to compartmentalize it. No one likes to get their feelings hurt. So I was trying to be their friend and be nice. And, but I quickly realized that I was going to get fired if my team didn't hit their numbers and I was busting my ass. And, you know, I was really fortunate playing sports in high school, also playing football in different sports that I had good coaches that said, if, if I, if we fail as a team, it's the coach's responsibility. And so my guys at 3M, my leadership team never blamed me and never blamed my reps. They would blame themselves. And it was this amazing kind of chain Uh, of command of everybody had ownership. If I recruited you and you failed as my sales rep and I failed you. (laughs) So, you know, there's no running. And that was, that was invaluable to understand that. Now, there are going to be yep. some people that are lazy. They don't want to work hard and they don't want to play by those rules. Well, yep. then, you know, you got to get rid of them and you've got to make tough decisions. And and I, I made enough of those tough decisions that I end up, I was really proud of it, Eric. I, in 3M, I had uh, national championship teams. And then when I got yep. into telecom, we'd be, on, we'd be on this call for like five days. Yep. I went into telecom after that. I got recruited when AT&T yep. divested. I ended up getting into one of the competitors of AT&T. And 
I had the top teams in the country as a director, you know, a district manager guy. And I, I for those that don't remember, AT&T was broken up as a monopoly, right? Yeah, it was sued by uh, a guy named McGowan, who was an attorney, and he started MCI. People probably don't remember yep. what MCI was, but <laughs> that company was eventually acquired. Didn't MCI become Sprint? Do I have that wrong? MCI was acquired by another infamous company called WorldCom. And you should Google Bernie Evers and WorldCom because that was one of the biggest schemes on the planet. But it was another lesson that I learned going into this telecom position was I took a step back to become a sales manager. I got a bunch of stock. There was 40 people. And eventually over a couple of years, the company grew to 3,500 people. There was, and and we ended up going public and selling the company for uh, $13 billion. And then you know, I took my stock, which wasn't, you know, millions and millions of dollars, but it was enough for a late 20 guy with some kids to give me an opportunity to start a company. That's what was an, allowed me to go and start an internet company in 19. 19- yeah, you weren't in a rush to go get the next job. You had a little bit of a nest egg, felt comfortable taking a risk. Oh, yeah, it was great. I thought there's no way I could fail. I got, I've got enough money to last me five years. And, you know, the old saying, you know, Murphy's Law, I, the money lasted me like eight months. And I was like hemorrhaging from every, you know, just everything that could go wrong went wrong. The internet yep. was so new. Literally, if you can imagine people back then, I, so I started an internet company, yep. which in 1995, 96, nobody even knew who Yahoo was. It's There were companies called Alta Vista and Netscape that people don't know today that were the, yep. the icons, the Googles, you know, and the Facebooks back then that are all gone. Yep. And yeah, that was my next adventure, uh, raising money, hiring a bunch of people, all those things that I had learned at 3M and in telecom yep. as a manager and a salesman helped. And how old were you at that point? I started that company when I was 29, I think, or 28 or 29. And I sold it when I was 32 or 33. The original name was called virtualrelocation.com. And it eventually became move.com. And the the smart people at Sequoia and all these venture firms, which is a whole other lesson that you get to learn when you're raising money, because a lot of them don't really know a whole lot. (laughs) was that no one was ever going to do business with us. They'd never know who we were because the company started with a V and no one would ever find us like we were in the yellow pages or something. (laughs) So it was, it was wild, wild west. Yeah. Got it. And so, but you did end up raising some money for it. Yeah. So another amazing lesson, you know, like just, there's so much texture in doing all those things. That was kind of like the funnest part of all those adventures was just so eclectic, so rich of so many different types of experiences that it was nice to make a lot of money. Don't get me wrong. But even being a jet mechanic and working on a flight deck and canceling stamps and all that shit led me to to really be able to talk to pretty much anybody and relate to anybody, which in sales and recruiting and raising money, you know, you're going to have to do. And so we raised about $6 million. And the first guy that besides, you know, people that friends and family that, that gave us money because they thought, we, you know, I was going to lose my house or something. Uh, they didn't yeah. think the internet was going to work and they didn't know what what I was trying to do, but they were trying to help me was a guy named uh, Ken Langone. Ken Langone, for those people that don't know, started Home Depot and Earthlink and is a legendary Wall Street investor, was the money guy in Home Depot, you know, in that relationship. And my friend's dad knew this guy who knew a guy and they worked at some bank together back in the seventies. And he took the meeting and I was so proud of how cool this company was that we were building. And I want to tell him, and he goes, you're good kids. Listen, this kid, this guy's dad, we go back. He's a good guy. How much money are you kids looking for? <laughs> and I'm like, so he doesn't want to look at the hours and hours yeah. of painstaking yeah. diligence of writing this business yeah. plan. He goes, you're good kids. He goes, I don't know anything about this internet thing. But, uh, and then he gave us the 2 million. And once he gave us the 2 million, even though he didn't even know what we did. 2 million in what? 
Oh, 98. Well, we started in 96, so it was like 98, 97 maybe. And then we sold the company like a year and a half later or something. 98, 97. Okay. So, and did he, so he put in money. Did he help from there? Did he like give advice? Did he help you sell it? He put, you know, he gave us 2 million bucks and, and that was it. How'd you figure out how to grow and sell this business? You didn't have any background in that. So that was the, this was like the Wharton school of sales, man. When you're going through 3M, I, I understood what a write down was. I understood what a P and L was and not going to college and getting F's in math in summer school. But when you put it in front of me and say, if you carry this inventory, it costs you money because you're financing that. Even as a, as a big company, my personal P&L was affected by every time the copier stayed another month. It was like, I, it was depreciating. And, I, and the company, you know what I mean? So when it was applied that way, I understood. When I understood what a valuation was and basic division, and when I had to raise the money, I understood negotiations because when I was selling copiers, you know, people were trying to get free paper from you or free toner. You know, it was, I was having flashbacks, you know, to some $2,000 copy machine and some lawyer trying to jack me up for like a $25 toner cartridge. Except now I was going 55 million. This is ludicrous. The company's worth 150. There's no way I'm going to get the board to like agree. So it was that kind of, it was that like real. It's crazy. Yeah, that's awesome. And ultimately that's what we did. We grew the company to 125, 30 people at offices around the country. We really, and I don't say this lightly, but you know, we pioneered how to make money through advertising. You have to remember there was yeah. no model. It was, this is going to yeah. be big. We think you've got to be a part of the transaction. In fact, um, many of the biggest experts on the planet back then were saying that advertising was a terrible model. You'll never make any money. Can you imagine? Yeah. And yeah. And then the other one that all the smart guys told me was no one would ever go online to move or buy a house or rent an apartment, <laughs> that it was a fool's error. And that, that is scary when you didn't go to college. We've had the founder of Zillow on this podcast too. He did pretty well. <laughs> Dude, no, you, I didn't go to college. I was a jet mechanic in the Navy. Like, and these guys are the smart guys telling me that I'm a moron and everything, all the money that I yeah. bet on this was a joke. And that's another massive lesson. On that note, you're in late twenties. You're having some senior fucking wealthy guys tell you this is a bad idea. How'd you stick with it? Were you just cocky and you're like, I don't care. I'm, I know what I'm doing. That's okay. Like, obviously we all, I think every entrepreneur has to be there, but that's what I'm curious about with you. Like, how'd you ignore all the people telling you it's a terrible idea? You know, that tenacity and commitment to knowing when you're right, like just yeah. knowing when you're right and taking the hits. And, and at night when you're by yourself and you're thinking, maybe I really screwed this one up because I had yeah. enough wins up into that point, kind of, yeah. where I really trusted myself. And without those those hits and those knocks early on, you know, selling door to door and all that shit, really, yeah. it was it was an amazing experience to know that there's a process, and if you follow a process that that's the process within that particular context that's proven to work, yeah. it's just math. Then you start to trust it. I started to trust the math inside of my brain about how I made decisions, and because I was in sales, I knew that 62 million people moved every year. I knew that there was no place for them to go, and I knew that in sales. The hardest part of sales is getting somebody, somebody sufficiently disturbed to get them to purchase something. So you take them from an at-rest position, shake them and go, why don't you have this car? Why don't you have this copier? You're a loser if you don't have this or whatever your dominant buying motive was going to be. And I knew that these people were already moving. They were already yeah. sufficiently disturbed and they had no yeah. place to go. And if, and if I was selling a mortgage or a rental apartment or furniture to these people, they were ready to go. Yep. So how do you, how is that not real? And that's kind of what I just kept coming back to until, you know, that guy gave me Never. money that didn't know what I was doing. 
And then you're yeah. a genius. Yeah, right. Of course. And the, I, I always, one of my favorite quotes is that separation between genius and ins- insanity is success. If you're successful, you're a genius. If you're unsuccessful, you were insane. That's it. <laughs> it's the same idea. You're you're literally stupid right before you sell the company <laughs> or like literally yeah. never work. Well, no, I, you watch it. I mean, you and I, we've seen a lot now. And I love, I, I've dealt with this with past companies that didn't end up going well, where it's like, the biggest cheerleaders that when it didn't go well, then go, oh, yeah, I knew that wasn't going to go well the whole time. Everybody loves to be like, oh, yeah, like it's the same thing with like predicting the economy right now where it's like everyone's a genius. Everyone knows what's coming the next year. And like I saw Larry Summers speak in November about what's going to probably the guy that would be the smartest guy in the world on predicting the U.S. economy. And he was completely wrong on what was going to happen in Q1. And so then he was speaking again last week at a conference I was at. I'm like, I'm good. It's OK. <laughs> I've heard him. And that's not just we don't, we don't know. Yeah, everybody thinks they know so much more than they do. Yeah, and, and the truth is there's like five guys in a room, maybe like Naples, yeah. Florida or someplace, and they're just Somewhere going, you ready? Should we go? Are we selling or we buy? What are we doing? Yeah. And everybody else runs around like they're like they're freaking, yeah. you know, mind readers. And yeah. they're so insignificant with the exception yeah. of really a host of these guys that are going to make or break companies. They're going to decide yeah. to anoint it or not anoint it. That's how it works. Yeah. Pretty crazy, but it's true. It, it, you're really coming to learn that more and more. I don't want to think about that often, by the way. I'm, I'm just going to try to keep getting my little pieces of cheese. Yeah, keep going on your – we have our hamster wheels that we're on, but they're going great. I 100% agree. There's that group, small group of people that from a global market standpoint, it saves a handful of people that really affect things. Okay, so you had a, you did end up selling the company. It was $150 million. Is that what you said? No, nah, it was it was a little less than $100 million. Here's the other thing that's so bizarre. A little less than $100 million. Um, yeah, back, I mean, hundred million was not what it used to be, right? But <laughs> what what happened was, look, the, all the investors ten x, which was used to be a good thing. Also, ten x was like a good return. Yeah. What I learned along the way was there's no standard anything. So when I was doing the contract, this deal went down, Eric, in the at the time was called the Delta Crown Room. It's now the Sky Club, but it was Delta's, you know, whatever room. Oh yeah, got it. Yeah, they flew the president. What do we know? The airport lounge. Right. Yeah. The president of Monster, who we sold the company Which airport, to the by the way? Portland. Nice. Portland, <laughs> Portland International Airport. So I drive out there with my CFO and my partner. And he goes, listen, he goes, and we had been going back and forth probably three months. You can't tell anybody because it's a publicly traded company and all that stuff, which you learn. You also learn mm-hmm. about a pooling of interest. So when a public company wants to buy a company, they normally try to buy a few at the same time. So they don't have to spend yep. all the money with lawyers. It's something that I didn't right. know that I learned as I was doing research about my leverage in this negotiation. Yep. So I knew that they had a $7 billion market cap. They were going to yep. buy us from anywhere from 50 to 150, which was what I was hearing, which was ludicrous. We, but, but unlike a lot of internet companies, I had a $7 million run rate. So like I had revenue. Nobody had revenue back then. Hey, that's worth 100 to 150. Amazon was losing like $500 million a month yeah. back then. You got to yeah. remember that was that new economy stuff. And I was yeah. still old right. enough at 30 to go, I don't yeah. know if I trust this. Yeah. Anyways, he sends me the, the, the sheet. He goes, it's been approved by the CEO. Andy McKelvey was the guy, multi-billionaire. And yeah. it was for $55 million. Yeah. And I go, yeah, this isn't going to work. This was like liar's poker. I go, it's not going to work. Yeah. Shareholders never take it. It's super generous. I appreciate the work, but you and I both know it ain't going to work. And he's like, yeah. are you kidding me? 
And my CFO and my partner think I'm a lunatic. I talk past the sale. That's it. It's over. We go outside in the hallway. They go, what are you doing? This isn't a copier. You know, this isn't, this is serious business. We have shareholders, you know, and again, putting me to the test. Cause what the hell do I know? I never started a company or sold a company before. And I said, trust me, I can, I have an instinct. I know they're a $9 billion, $8 billion company. This is nothing to them. It's a stock swap. And then I looked at the paperwork. So he goes, all right, I'll tell you what, we'll give you 88. And I'm like, well, let me think about it. So there's a standard agreement at that time, which said founders were locked up for 15 months. And this was just the way deals were done. The purpose of that deal was because if the founder then started quickly selling his stock, it could tank the the publicly traded shares because it would look like they knew something that they didn't know. But in this case, when you've got an $8 billion company buying an $88 million company, stop it. It's monopoly money. So instead of just going, oh my God, I'm a millionaire. Like, I can't believe this. I'm like, that's not going to work. So long story short, I I said, I'll do a 90 day lockup, but that's it. Now this is, this is in at the end of 1999. Yeah. So he goes, the other part of negotiating a stock swap deal is you can either lock in the stock today. You can let it run for the 90 days that you, that you're locked up and you have, you have options. So I negotiated a 90-day lockup, not a 15-month lockup, and I wanted to float the stock because the, the, the internet was like this. It was yeah. like at the height of the internet, and I knew there was probably some wiggle room. So the 88 at 56 or $57 you, you, you a share. You predicted that in three months it might come down. That's what you wanted. You were banking I, on. I predicted that in three months it'll probably go up, but that no way oh. that in 15 months the internet's over. Like I, It was like right. that was a huge yeah, yeah. Ponzi scheme. It was, yeah. I couldn't believe it was happening. So. The yeah. stock went from 56, 57 to the 70s, right? Yeah. So yeah. if you, if I can speak for myself, I sold at 72, 73. Yeah. Then I sold some on the way back down in the 60s, something. So all in all, the deal was between 100 and 100 and change, it, depending on what yeah. you got out of. And then yeah. we all know the history is that, you know, less than a year later, uh, the internet bubble burst and that stock was worth $7, $6 a share. And and never really recovered. <laughs> so, yeah. You know, the Lord giveth and the Lord taketh away. So Monster.com bought it. Monster.com bought it. Their parent company was TMP Worldwide, which at the time was yeah. the largest Yellow Pages company in the world. And and they had a huge market cap. And and you know, I just I just kept getting lucky. You know, yeah, it's, like it's, I remember when Monster did their Super Bowl commercial, and that was like what set them up. And that, that was when it was a million dollars, like for the first yeah. time somebody had when spent it feels that kind of like money. 2022 all over again. Like, well, not this past Super Bowl, but the one last year with all the crypto shit. Like, that was 99 was Super Bowl. Flashback. Crypto was yeah. flashback. I'm watching all these stadiums. I'm like, yeah, they'll be they'll be done soon. And that's yeah. what happened to the internet. Mortgage.com, yeah. you know, rent. All these companies were like, what? Yeah. I mean, move.com was a good URL. I'll be honest with you. That was that was pretty yeah. tight. But it didn't stop me from making $7 million in revenue when it was virtualrelocation.com. That's the point, right? right? Yeah. It's about the work. And listen, we we know now, the company is not that big of a driver. Like, what the hell is a Google or Facebook or Amazon? Like, that's not, they they didn't get books.com, you know? What's Nike? What's Nike or the swoosh? I mean, you read Shoe Dog and you understand that, you know, we all have common stories, Eric. You're an entrepreneur. You started from nothing. And, you know, there's a lot of haters. People like... People were telling me, dude, you got so lucky. Oh my God, you got so lucky. And I'm like, you know, yeah, go tell my wife that. You know, when my wife, yeah, she's exactly. like, do you really want to pay the mortgage? Like, do we still have any money? Why does the, why does the, like, the water guy, like, keep walking, circling around our house? <laughs> so I want to yeah, punch no, people it's... like that in the face when they tell me that. It does take some luck. It's, uh, 
And I, I would say sure. it definitely takes luck. I feel fortunate because there's plenty of people that have taken the stab we both have and got nowhere. It, that are no 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 dumber or smarter than us. Correct. Just or hard, or less hardworking. There's a, there's a luck factor for sure. But once you get that luck, very few people actually go for it. And that's the difference that I've seen recently. I used to say it's luck. Like luck's the big, you know, equalizer. That's, you know, everybody works hard. Everybody's smart enough. But like luck is a big factor. And then I realized so few people take the opportunity. And that's the big, and actually run with it and work. And when shit's tough, like this is something I've realized the past year watching such a shift in the economy. Cause I'm, I, you know, 2008, I was fresh out of college. I didn't really know is most businesses fail when the person gives up. They don't fail because there's no options like that. There are, there are businesses that get that point. There's literally no options. They're fucking $20 million underwater at a business that makes a million a year. Like you're fucked, but there most businesses that go out of business, the founder, the leaders, whoever just go, I'm, I can't do it anymore. The stress is too high, whatever. There's a million ways to fail. Like, Literally yes. in every day when I, and I used to think about this, when I would you know, go speak at different places and I'd say, you have to understand that every day you're making decisions that can make and break your company, that can yep. force somebody to quit, force some investor not to give you the money, to you know, make a yep. bad investment in, in technology, to quit. But, but all those, that's why when you look at companies like Nike and Intel and Microsoft and all these big, huge, successful companies, their first yep. 20 years, like Phil Knight, was was yeah. still thinking he wasn't going to exactly. make payroll in, in twenty years after he starts a company. Yeah, you know? yeah. it's and, and, and by the way, not for really. every Nike, there's a dozen companies that do end up there. Like you mentioned yeah. it, like the big. Where's Alta Vista? Where's Netscape? You know, like yeah. Look what happened to AT and T, and what happened to IBM, and what happened to Kodak, yeah. and what happened to just companies that have been around for a long time that had massive yeah. advantages. That's exactly it. Because you you don't get to take a break. That's part of running a business. A lot of people don't yeah. know this. I lived in Portland for 23 years. Yep. If you don't know, Nike rotates everyone every two years. So there's no wow. anybody getting comfortable. That's by design. Nike That's changes. Yeah. It doesn't matter if you're the hottest design. Like, boom, you go to the next place, the next place. I don't know if you know that. but yep. No, I didn't. Um, no, it makes sense. Cool. Because it, it goes two ways. One, I also think people get really stagnant in the same role. I think it gets boring and they just get like, it's not fun for people. Dynamic people want to be dynamic. And you want dynamic people running your business and leading you know, the charge. So, all right. So you're 31, 32 years old. Just made a, yeah. what, $80 million personally, sounds like? Not not personally, you know. I had to divvy up a little bit of it to people, but like sure. I, I made enough money so that I don't have to work. I don't have to work anymore, you know, if yeah. I didn't want to. But you don't get there because you don't want to work. Yeah. <laughs> so I was say so. Thirty two. You didn't move to Boca and just kick it on the beach for the past thirty years. I want to move to Boca so bad. I wanted to go. I was going to take everybody. I had four kids, by the way, at this point, all little kids, yeah. and I I started to get involved in deals every because again now I went from being stupid. It with overnight, yeah. I'm a genius and everybody wants to talk to me and pick my brain and, and pay yeah. me like stupid amount of money. And I started getting caught up in it because I'm in my 30s. I'm in the newspaper. I'm in the news. Everybody wants yeah. to be my friend. And luckily, yeah. thank God, my wife really didn't give a shit about any of that stuff. She awesome. thought like, there's no way that that just happened to you because you're stupid. You forget everything all the time. And like, I, I don't even know what just happened. I thought you did something with computers. Like it was pretty weird. But she said, um, you promised me because you were working through the night. You know, all yeah. day, all night, as you know, and when you start these things, yeah. that, that oh, you've yeah. got to be willing to do that. That when if if when things slowed down a little bit, and now I don't have to work anymore, you would coach the kids, yeah. you would get involved. And so I remember a very specific conversation where she said, "Hey, honey, you're gonna alley soccer starts. My daughter's like five, so it's kick and chase yeah. bullshit soccer. Like yeah. there's a bunch. Of, it's just like you babysitting." <laughs> And she goes, uh, and you'll, it's all coming down the pike for you, Huberman. She goes, so 
you know, it starts next week. And I go, no, 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 no. I, I can't coach soccer. You, I'm a captain of industry. Like, you don't understand. Like, I'm a really big deal. I get all this stuff to do now. And she goes, honey, you're so sweet. She goes, I know you're a captain of industry. Just tell Allie and she'll understand that you're a captain of industry. You can't coach her soccer. So I was like, fuck, fuck, fuck. And then she basically is responsible for me being a pseudo good dad and spending all that time yeah. with my kids instead of jet setting around the world being a captain of industry. And so, so I did that for like six, seven years. Did you, and were you working on stuff in the meantime? Like, I'm curious, like, did you have, did you? Yeah, I was like, I started Tao, my agency, which yeah. was a concept that I had after working with a bunch of agencies that wasted my money, PR firms that wasted my money, yeah. charged me these monthly fees, didn't have any accountability. And I started something called Tao Modern Marketing. And the idea was, what if we partnered and I was a part of the way that you built your brand and I was really a caretaker and I wasn't incentivized to get fees the more that I spent, you know, the more that you spent with me, the more money I made. What if, and it was really kind of naive because it's hard to run a business that way. But yeah. I launched I, this little agency in my mind was going to be the biggest, coolest agency on the planet. Kind of like what yeah. you did with, with um, Hawk. And I, I launched Nike 6.0 digitally. Yeah. I launched yeah. Red Bull surfing. I launched probably six or seven Jordan sneakers. I worked with Diesel and did global tours. I worked with Renzo Russo, the founder of Diesel. And I was nobody. I was a knucklehead. This was your time off, right? This is my time off. I, I hired yeah. a president. I had people that, I mean, can you imagine being a kid? I went and sold copiers. The kid that I yeah. hired, I go, listen, I need you to sell the Red Bull Air Races. We're going to send you to, you know, Turkey in two weeks. And you're going to work with Red Bull and they don't have a budget. They just give us money to go do cool shit. So yeah. that was the company that, that I had for eight years. And it was amazing. And I learned, a sh I learned a boat ton about marketing, digital marketing. And, you know, that was an amazing. And I still got to coach. Then I yeah. went and go, you know, do my business. And, and that, was, yeah. that was a lot of fun. Yeah. Awesome. And so. Sponsored race cars with Kanye West and Marcus Allen, Formula BMW. That was kind of fun. And yeah. um, did a lot of random shit. Wrote a book. Is, was that all during that decade, like that seven, eight years you were hanging with your kids? All that happened during that? It happened from 2000 through, I wrote the book in 2003. What was um, the book? The Great American Stay-at-Home Wives Conspiracy, which was, <laughs> was really funny because now that I got to stay home, you know, and, yeah. and hang out with my kids and go to the club, I started yeah. watching all these yentas that just did nothing. They literally, they, they dropped their kids off at daycare. They went to Pilates, met their girlfriends for coffee. Yep. screamed at their husbands all day that they were miserable and that they were tired of watching the kids. I'm like, wait a second, this is a scam. They're like, the kids are at daycare right now. And so I, I go, I got to write a book about this. And because I have ADD and I'm a lunatic, my friends go, dude, you're not going to write shit. He goes, you're, you're, how are you going to write a book? And I go, I don't yeah. know. I, how did I start a company? So I literally wrote this book, took me three years yep. Yep. and I got all these rejection letters on my wall. Everybody yep. said, this book sucks. It's terribly edited, like all this stuff. <laughs> And then, then I sold the rights to Dark Horse and Dark Horse, you know, produced The Mask and Hellboy and, and then yep. they paid me. And my yep. book was in Barnes and Noble on the desk of new books next to the Da Vinci Code. And I was like, what's up, bitches? <laughs> <laughs> so, you know, that happened and that was cool. Yeah, yeah that's really cool. And so your kids, uh, you know, it sounds like your kids started to grow up and, you know, what, what, you know, you hit your, let's say it sounds like your 40s. Did you continue to use? Mid forties? Yeah, no, I, I was, I mean, you know, my 40th birthday was really fun and I was just, it was a great time. Uh, I had time to spend it with my kids. They were getting older. They were all in school. They were kind of spread yeah. out. And I, um, I started some other companies 
that shit the bed that were like some of the best ideas on the planet that I had that I invested more money than any of the other things. And that, you know, was a really good wake up call to just getting lumped on. I would say that's a common thing when you, because you you end up throwing money at problems you used to grind through and not throw money at. And a lot of second time -time entrepreneurs fail that way. That's true. But but like I was getting dirty. So this company that I started got me back to the factories. I think when I met you, it was like ending up Green Endeavor was like at the tail end of this thing. And I had a partner and that partner was, it wasn't a good uh, match for us because of a lot of reasons. But you pointed out, oftentimes I just kept having success, success, success in the most abstract ways. Like who publishes a book and then, you know, sells it. Like you can't help, even though you know that shit's going to hit the fan soon. And even though you know that you're not some super guru, you can't help but that know that the odds are in my favor. It doesn't mean they're hundred percent, but like if I'm batting 500, that's insane. If I'm batting at that time, like 700. Yeah. And then, you know, I just took some dings, but it was perfect. I mean, I didn't lose my ass in 07. I made some good investments, you know, but the lumps were good to take. Your Bernie Madoff and Boca wasn't your boy? I had like Madoff juniors coming to me because I sold copy machines and dealt with a bunch of shysters. When people yeah. would come to me to manage my portfolio and they go, you can't lose. We cover the downside. We cover the upside. I'm like, ah, that makes me nervous when you say that. So yeah, I'm going to keep my money with like, you know, Morgan Stanley because I can sue them. I don't know who the fuck this guy is. Yeah. <laughs> exactly. Um, uh, yeah. And all right. So, and then you, again, you spent time with your kids, they started to grow up. And even with all this money in the bank, you've kind of, you you just kept grinding. Like what, what is it about that? Like, I just love building stuff. Probably like yeah. you, I'm a creator. Yeah. I like yeah. to build stuff. So, and, and when I say I don't want to leave any meat on the bone, I didn't want to continue down tech. Had I stayed in tech and stayed in the internet business, I, I probably would have made hundreds and hundreds of millions of dollars. Cause once you get access to that orbit right. of, of yeah. the guys that are rolling, and I know a lot of them, and they, they made way more money than I did, it's it's tough not to do that. But again, I can't take the credit. My wife really kind of, I grew up with a single mom. I didn't have a dad. I'm like, am I going to be the dick that like doesn't spend any time with his kids when I can? Yeah. So it was like a weird thing. But fast forward, I, I just did the book. Then I I had a radio show you know, through those years that was really fun because you know, I never had a radio show. And it was the yep. number one talk radio show in Portland, Oregon on FM 101.1, Cars and Stuff Radio. I mean, it was ridiculous. So my friends were like, you just like to mess with people's heads, right? You're trying to make people feel bad. I go, look at my face and my head. I go, I have no mercy for anybody. I have to go through life like this. <laughs> and then I met my partner now in Blue Skies, this guy, Phil, and we put together this interesting venture fund to invest in early stage companies. And that enabled me to meet new people, help other companies start. I met you along the way through Phil and uh, you know, you got me to move out to Southern California, which was an amazing blessing to come out here as it turned out. Yeah, no, it's a good spot. And so what do you think's next for you? What's, do you think you're just going to keep grinding till the wheels fall off? Like, is there a a retirement in the future? Like just curious with that type of person, you haven't had to work for 30, almost 30 years. You haven't had to like, would your lifestyle have changed if you didn't work from a financial situation? Your life wouldn't be no different if you had just stopped working 30 years ago, right? I'd have more money if I stopped working 30 years ago and didn't do anything. (laughs) You could argue that I would, I would probably have more money. But, um, you know, like I said, having money is great and I have enough money so that I feel really good. The competitive nature of me sometimes goes, man, what if I just had another big pop? Like that would be pretty cool. Just, yeah. just out of the competitive nature of it. But, you know, I think eventually as my kids get married, none of them are married. None of them have kids. I'm not a grandfather yeah. yet or anything. 
And, you know, Eric, I get to work with 25 and 35 year olds. I'm like stuck in this capsule. So if I was working for an accounting firm or I was in a law firm and I hung out with a bunch of guys that were my age, you know, I'd be wearing khaki pants and golf shirts and like playing golf. But, you know, I've been so energized by these smart, you know, entrepreneurs that I meet all the time that one day will happen and, you know, Brett Favre will stop playing and, you know, somebody will stop playing. They'll hang up their cleats or whatever. And I hope I don't go out ugly like some of them. I hope I really know. And, and, I, and I, I end on a really good note and people still think I'm yep. smart. <laughs> and so that's how I'll try to go out. Not anytime soon, though. Awesome. So last question for you. For someone trying to pursue their dreams, whatever that might be, or go for it, what would be the one piece of advice you either got or wish you got that would help someone go for it, so to speak? I mean, we, we've been through these things before. We have these kind of questions asked us. You talked about this tenacity. Tenacity, you can be tenacious if you want something really bad. And mm-hmm. if you want something really bad, make sure that it makes sense in a way. Like make sure in, a, in an entrepreneurial standpoint, there's a market for it at least that you're solving a, a yep. big problem. And if you think that you're solving a problem and you think that enough people like definably would buy it and you're really excited about it, then do that. Don't do the thing that you're yep. not excited about because it looks like it might be easier because you will not have the tenacity you know, like you will in a marriage sometimes for successful marriages when you're going through the grind, when you're, everybody's saying you're stupid and, and those moments that are dark, that that's really where the rubber hits the road, man. And so if you're going to do yeah. anything, make sure you're really into it and you're tenacious. Don't do it because you think it'll make a lot of money because you'll get your ass kicked. Do it first because you believe in it and enough people around you get it. And they're kind of like, yeah, dude, if you could do that, it's going to be hard, but yeah, I get it. Yeah. Love it. Well, Scott, this has been awesome. Thank you for coming on Hawk Talk. Thanks, man. Great talking to you and have a great rest of the day. You too. You've been listening to Hawk Talk. To ensure you never miss an episode, subscribe to the show in your favorite podcast player. If you're listening in Apple Podcasts, we'd love for you to give us a quick rating for the show. Just tap the number of stars you think this podcast deserves. Thank you so much for listening. Until next time.